From Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9, let us now give our attention to the reading and the hearing of God's holy and inspired word. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For every one that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we do give thee thanks for thy word, and we pray for your blessing upon us as we come to hear it, as we come to receive it. We ask, O Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Two weeks ago, as we looked at the subject of prayer, we saw the need for persistence in prayer. And the question this morning as we approach this passage is, how is our prayer life? What does our prayer life look like? Because when we look at the parable of the, the widow there in the previous verses and the unjust judge, she pleaded for mercy. She pleaded for intervention. And we find in that wonderful account that the Lord Jesus Christ teaches us that we are to be persistent in prayer. And oftentimes we're not very persistent in prayer. And yet here we have the call to persistency in prayer. But as we come to this next scene in the Gospel of Luke, we see not only the persistence or the perseverance in prayer, but we see the need for humility in prayer. We don't often see these connected, and I think, sadly, modern commentators love to always pick on the fact that, well, we're not sure why Luke puts it here and why Mark puts it here. It's all under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, how the gospel writers arrange their accounts. But we see the connection here between verses 1 through 8 and 9 through 14 about the importance of prayer. And so both of these parables teach us how should we pray. 
When the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray, what did Jesus say? When you pray, say, Our Father who art in heaven. Now that is a wonderful prayer that is both a model and one that we can utilize in worship and in prayer. But here in that model prayer, as we will begin to see on the Lord's Day evening as we come to the subject of prayer in our larger catechism, that prayer is important because it is a means of grace. We have the, word, the preaching of the word, we have the sacraments, and prayer are all means of grace by which the Lord uses to draw us unto himself. And so prayer is the theme of this chapter, particularly verses 1 through 14. But as you see, the Pharisee and the publican here in this passage of Scripture, it's, it's um, almost striking when you see the parallel between this parable and the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 16 and verse 9. You see the unrighteous and you see the self-righteous who are both contrasted. You see in the, the uh, younger brother, you see that spirit of humility as he came to the father in repentance. And you see in the older brother that spirit of pride. And so we see that here in this parable. Two kinds of people. There are only two kinds of people in the world. Either they are self-righteous or they are righteous. And when we say righteous, we don't mean that haughty righteousness. That is self-righteousness. But we need, mean that perfect righteousness which shows itself in how they live. Jesus is coming to the end of his earthly journey. He's making his way to Jerusalem. And as he makes his way, he's teaching his disciples about the importance of discipleship. How do you live as a Christian? How do you live as a Christian in a fallen and sinful world? Well, Jesus tells us how to live. He says, expect tribulation, expect uh, opposition when you live as a Christian. But also remember that you are called to a life of prayer. And so here in this passage, we find the contrast between two kinds of prayer and two kinds of people. And as we see here in verse 9, as we come to the contrast of these two men, we see there in verse 8, or verse 9, Jesus spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Now, when the, the, the text here tells us that Jesus spoke this unto certain which trusted in themselves, there's no specific crowd of people that he addresses. Some assume it's the Pharisees, but he doesn't say the Pharisees. You remember there were two Pharisees that were not self-righteous? Do you remember Nicodemus who came to Jesus by night? He was not your typical Pharisee. You remember Joseph of Arimathea in the Gospels who assisted Christ with the cross and as he ministered to Christ, he was a Pharisee and yet he was not self-righteous. And so Jesus is not necessarily addressing Pharisees, although the Pharisees 
were always standing off. You know, as we read these accounts and we see Luke going back and forth. Okay, Jesus speaks to his disciples. He speaks to the crowd. He speaks to the Pharisees. We kind of get lost as Westerners. But when you see that Jesus is addressing certain types of people in certain situations. But here, he's addressing certain people, whether they be scribes and Pharisees or maybe even among the crowd that trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. And so Jesus tells this parable to point his readers to find salvation in Christ alone. He points his readers away from their own self-righteousness and points them to the righteousness that they can only find in one who is perfectly righteous. I remember many years ago when we were living in Nova Scotia, I had the privilege of being involved with a panel at uh, St. Francis um, University in um, one town there in Nova Scotia. And this was a Roman Catholic university, and of course it was in name only. But there was a panel, Roman Catholic was on that panel, there's a pro and a couple of Protestants. I was asked to be one of the Protestants on the panel. And I didn't know what to say. So when my time came, I just said, you know, I says, there's a lot of talk about what it is to be righteous and holy. And I said, some would say that you must have some inherent righteousness in yourself. The Roman Catholic looked at me with this glare and he knew where I was going. And I says, but no man since Adam has had any kind of righteousness within him. And then I used that as a segue into preaching the gospel of Christ, that salvation comes by the righteousness of Christ alone. It was amazing to see the response of people and to see some people just dumbfounded. And yet this truth always confounds the foolish of our age. You will ask the average person, well, I'm right. I'm good. Every person is good. And we hear this all the time. And the question is, well, why does a good person go off and shoot six people in a school? Why does a good person do many of the things that people do that call themselves good? And so Jesus wants us to see from this passage the importance of, of what kind of prayer life we have, but more importantly, the need for righteousness to be found in him. And perhaps this morning, there are some that Jesus is addressing in verse 8 when he says he is writing this parable or speaking this parable unto those who trust in themselves, that they were righteous and despised others. And so as we look there to the first contrast, we see the characteristic of the Pharisee there in verse 10. The account tells us two men went up to the temple to pray. This was customary. Usually there were prescribed times of prayer, morning and afternoon. And so these two men went up to the temple to pray. This was... Um, done quite record, uh, regularly in the life of Israel. 
And so we see as these two men went up to pray, they both represent opposite extremes of religious devotion to God's law. You heard a wonderful exposition this morning from the summary of God's law, of our devotion to God's law. But there's only two responses to that law, depending on whether you are self-righteous or righteous. And the one is depicted in the Pharisee who believed that he obeyed every jot and tittle of the law. Notice here, the Pharisee goes, he stands. This was the particular posture of prayer in the first century and even in Jewish, the life of, of the Jewish church, they would stand when they prayed. And so as, they, as he prayed, notice what he prays. God, I thank thee that I am not as other men, as extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. Notice his accolades of his righteousness. I fast twice in the week. Fasting twice a week wasn't prescribed under the law. But he made sure he was doing everything right by fasting twice in the week. I give tithes or a tenth of all that I possess. And notice here that as the public or as the Pharisee stands to pray, he stands before God based on his own righteousness. He stands before God as if he has something to offer to God. Here's the deception of this Pharisee who stands to pray. Here is the deception of all self-righteous men. They think they have a standing with God. They think at the end of their life they're automatically going to go to heaven because at one time they were connected to a church or they've done enough righteous deeds. And that's the deception here of this man. He thought he was perfectly righteous as he stood before God. But notice the problem with the Pharisee's prayer. There is no note, no hint of repentance or sorrow for sin whatsoever. He comes to the Lord and offers his prayer. I fast. I am not. I thank thee. I give tithes. I possess. It's all I, 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 I. And the question is, do we fall into that category? This is not a sin of the Pharisees, particularly. This is a sin that Jesus says of those who trust in themselves. And so as he comes before God, he comes with this haughtiness. He comes with this spirit of not humility, but a spirit of, of arrogance and pride. Why would God not receive me? I've kept his law. And there are many today who keep the law of God perfectly. There are some religious groups that prescribe to them 
to not only the moral keeping of the law, but the ceremonial keeping. And they make sure that you have all the feast days of the Old Testament, that you have every feast day done perfectly right, and observe the Sabbath on the right day of the week, and then everything else is okay. But notice, as he prays, he condemns himself in his prayer. I thank thee that I'm not like extortioners, that I'm not unjust, that I'm not like adulterers, or even as this publican. Well, I draw your attention to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23, beginning in verse 5. This is a long discourse in Matthew's gospel on the judgment that Jesus brings against scribes and Pharisees. But there in verse 5, it says of these self-righteous Pharisees, but all their works they do for to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries, Those are those little um, pieces of the law of God that they put on their forehead. They would walk around with, with parts of the law of God on their forehead. They would enlarge the borders of their garment. They love the utmost rooms at feasts and the chief seats in the synagogue. And then you go down to verse 9 and, or verse 10 and he says, Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Jesus Christ. But when you look in those woes of all the things that they did, and when you look later in um, that account, he calls them blind guides. He calls them hypocrites because they clean the outside of the cup. But within, they are filled, verse 25, with what? extortion and excess. Wait a minute. This Pharisee's just praying, Lord, I thank you that I'm not an extortioner. Guess what? They're full of extortion. Verse 26, Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is in the cup and platter, that the outside may be clean also. And then he continues on, and there's a whole list of things that Jesus brings as an indictment against them. Here they kill the prophets. They stone the ones who were sent to bring the word of God to them. How often do we despise the preaching of the word? How often do we despise that warning that comes from God? Well, I don't like the messenger. Well, that was the same thing the Pharisees said. We don't like those messengers. We don't like what they have to say. But this man condemns himself because he is an extortioner. He is unjust. They were very unjust with the people. He is an adulterer. He is, by all accounts, self-righteous, condemned, and full of conceit and pride. Notice the contrast with the publican. 
The publican, verse 13, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This idea of smoting the breast was a sign of humiliation under the Old Testament. And so they would simply smote on the left side of their breast and they would cry unto the Lord for mercy. Here's a man standing far off. This is the outer court of the temple. Only the priest could go in the inner court. But the outer court of the temple, all of the Jews would come. And so the Pharisee is probably standing as close to the wall as he can get. But notice where the the publican stands. He stands afar off. Now how could that Pharisee know that this publican whom he says, I thank God that I'm not like him. He was standing a ways off. And as he, was a st- as he was standing off, it says he would not so much as lift his eyes unto heaven. But as he smote his breast, he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Here's the contrast. The self-righteous Pharisee. And yet this righteous publican who approaches God in his prayer, not with a sense of entitlement, not with a sense of, of demand or not with a sense of pride or righteousness, but he comes before God recognizing that he is a sinful and unholy man. Remember the account of the man in the Gospels, whom Jesus healed, and he says, Lord, depart from me, for I'm what? A sinful man. This was, the pub, this was the publican. He was standing afar off. You know why the Pharisee didn't like him? He was a tax collector. They did not like tax collectors because the tax collectors were those who collected taxes for Rome. And they looked at Jesus as one who came to deliver them from that Roman system. They didn't see him as the Messiah who came to show them the way to righteousness. And so here we see that this man shows the act of humiliation. He shows the very expression of grief and sorrow. He literally comes before God Affected by his own sin. Affected by his own unrighteousness. And he realizes that his standing before God could not be based on his adherence to the law. Because he said he was not perfect. He was not righteous. But he came before God pleading for his mercy. Wonderful contrast between the two. But notice even though these are two accounts of prayer, the Pharisees' prayer is not a prayer. It is not a prayer that God receives. But the second, the prayer of the publican, is the prayer that God receives. How often... And we need to analyze, I think this is something we all have to do, but we have to analyze our prayer. 
How do we approach God when we pray? Okay, I got my shopping list here. I got all that I need to pray about. And when we pray, we never approach God with that sense of humility. We never approach God with that sense of, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. There's always examples of prayer where the one begins with prayer, acknowledging that God is sovereign, that God is in control of all things, that He is our God, and then the confession of that sin. The confession and acknowledgement of our sin and our need for the mercy of God. We should never approach God without confessing before Him that we are vile and weak and helpless. That is the posture that we must have in prayer. That we come not with this false sense of humility. Oh, I'm so low. You know, that can be a a way of self-righteousness as well. But we come with that true sense of guilt. We come with that true sense of casting ourselves upon the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other way to find mercy. Only through Him. But notice the response of Jesus in verse 14. It's a wonderful conclusion to this parable. I tell you, this man, that is the publican, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. That word justified can mean many things, particularly in the New Testament. But here, justified means to be declared righteous by the judge. You can stand before a judge having committed a crime and you can say, how do you plead? They can ask, how do you plead? I plead guilty. And the judge can declare your sentence null and void. He can wipe it out. Or he may give you the penalty that you deserve. But this judge declared this man righteous. He went home justified, made right with God. And then Jesus uses that to remind us that the one who lifts himself up like the The Pharisee will be made low, and yet the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Here we see that the essential characteristic of saving faith is true humility. There's no sense of humility in the publican or in the Pharisee. He has no sense of humility. He prides himself in the law and in his accomplishments and And who he was as a Pharisee. Here we see. Sign of saving faith in this man. He went home justified. He went home not condemned. But he was received. By the Lord. Because he. Took away his sin and guilt. And now he stands righteous and holy before him question this morning is, what is your standing with this judge? How do you come before him? 
Do you come pleading a sense of your own goodness and righteousness? Oh, you know what? I've done this, I've done this, I've done a lot of good things. But at the end of the day, that will get you nowhere. And yet this man goes away justified and made right with God. And so do you approach God? Do you come before Him confessing your guilt and your sin and your shame and realizing that you are ruined and undone? Wasn't that the posture of the prophet Isaiah? When he comes into the temple to pray, he just doesn't come into the temple and start praying, Lord, this, this land's in a mess. The king has died and, and we have a crisis here. Take care of it. That's not how he prays. He comes with a spirit of, Lord, I am a man of what? Unclean lips. And he pleads for the Lord's mercy there. Too often times we rush into prayer. And when we rush into prayer, we don't have that spirit of humility. We don't have that spirit of coming before God rightly. We must take time to pray. Oh, I've got two minutes. I've got to pray. Well, you might as well not pray. But here the point is that we must realize that true life of prayer involves humility and brokenness as we come before God. like to draw your attention to that wonderful psalm. And this is a beautiful way for us to transition into the Lord's Supper this morning. This is a good way for us to prepare ourselves each month as we come to the Lord's table. But you're familiar with Psalm 51, that Psalm of David. That Psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him and told him, that he had committed adultery. What did David say when the prophet came? That man should be stoned. You are that man. And so here in Psalm 71, David confesses his sin, pleading for God's mercy. But there in verses 1 through 6 of Psalm 51, we see David's confession of sin. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. Unless the Lord shows kindness to us, we cannot come with a sense of mercy. And so here, he pleads for mercy, that God would be gracious and slow unto him, that the Lord would show undeserved favor toward him. He comes and he cries for mercy. He casts himself upon the Lord's mercy. His appeal is to the court of heaven. Here in verses 1 through 6, God is the offended party. He sees the offense. He is the judge. But notice here in his confession, I own my guilt. He is holy And his law is righteous. There's no sense of I here. You know, oftentimes when two people are guilty of of some sin, perhaps there's been bitterness and strife, and one will say, well, it's his fault. You know what? Both people are at fault. 
There's always guilt on every side. But we often claim that I'm not guilty. I didn't do anything. Notice David owns his guilt. David committed adultery. He committed murder. He committed deceit. And yet he owns his guilt. He comes before the party whom he has offended. But notice in verses 7 through 12, here is a prayer for complete and full atonement. Not only does he confess his sin, but he comes to the Lord for cleansing from his sin because that is required. God does not simply forgive sin. It must be cleansed. I go to the one who can cleanse and absolve me of my sins. I remember my own experience growing up as a Roman Catholic, going regularly to what they call the sacrament of penance or confession. And I would say it's been so many weeks or months or whatever it's been since my last confession. You confess your sins to a human priest who should have been confessing his sins to me. And as I confess my sins, he says, well, I absolve you. And then he says, go and do this prayer or do this penance or whatever. And you know what? Every time I still felt guilt. Every time I left, I found no sense of guilt removed. But here the psalmist says that the Lord provides the cleansing. He prescribes the way. He refers to the hyssop branch where he says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Hyssop was that herb branch that was used with the sacrifices of the temple for the sprinkling of blood. And the priest would sprinkle the sacrifice with blood showing that there must be an atonement, a cleansing for sin. It is not the priest's outward cleansing that purifies my soul, but it is, but it does speak of a better priest and a better blood. There was nothing inferior to the priest in the blood of the Old Testament. It was all a picture. It was all a type of the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ, who is a better priest, provides a better sacrifice by his own blood, brings full and complete atonement. And then the psalmist in conclusion in verses 3 through 15 concludes with this penitential prayer, this prayer of sorrow. He comes there in verse 13 by stating, Then, or verse 12, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Then will I teach transgressors thy way, and sinners shall be converted unto me. Open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. He comes with this restored sense of joy. He comes with confidence and assurance, not in his own righteousness. He comes with confidence and assurance in the righteousness of the better priest, of the better sacrifice, of whom Hebrews reminds us. And so we have that picture for us this morning as we come to the Lord's table. That we come trusting and clinging to the righteousness of one who can absolve us and cleanse us 
and remove all of our sin and all of our guilt. Perhaps this morning you are weighed down with guilt. Sometimes we can be weighed down with false guilt. But sometimes we need to be reminded that Christ has taken away the guilt of our sin, that only as we acknowledge our sin and come before Him, we come with true guilt, with a sense of our true guilt before God. True repentance, which is always required of the sinner as he comes before God, acknowledges his sin, recognizes his inability to escape, and appeals to our great high priest. Our appeal should always be to that great high priest. We, like the publican, should come with that sense of guilt, sense of shame, come broken and naked before a God who knows us and sees us. And so the question this morning, perhaps you're sitting there thinking, well, I'm not a, I'm not a self-righteous Pharisee. I don't despise others. And yet, you know, there are times when we can despise others in a very subtle way. We can have disdain for certain people, even towards sinners. Oftentimes as Christians, oh, that group over there, you want to watch them. We have to be careful that we do not despise sinners. Jesus came to receive sinners. Certainly he passed judgment upon them. But judgment that is passed upon sin should always be according to God's law. And so we must be careful that we don't despise others, even sinners. That we don't see ourselves as more righteous than others. We are righteous not because we're better, not because we're good. We are righteous because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ who is better, who is perfect, who is impeccable. And so our standing is always in Christ, coming before this God who receives us. I would recommend, if you're not familiar with it, everyone knows Matthew Henry, but how many people know Matthew's, Matthew Henry's method of prayer? It's quite a thick book. It's a wonderful book on how to pray. And he uses the model, I think, that is, is proper. Approaching God with a sense of our unworthiness and our, our sin, but acknowledging that we stand in need of the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where are you this morning? Are you the self-righteous man who thinks, well, yeah, everything's okay. Everything's good. And yet you have nothing to claim for your righteousness. The only thing you can claim for yourself is the righteousness of Christ alone. And if you've not received his righteousness, which comes by repentance and faith, then I would plead with you today. To call upon the Lord Jesus Christ. To plead for his mercy. To ask that he would indeed show mercy. Because your standing before God is not based on any merit or righteousness or goodness of your own. It's all based upon the provision that God has made through the atoning work of his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we come before thee this morning.
We acknowledge as the publican that we stand guilty and vile before Thee. That we do give Thee thanks that You have shown great mercy and kindness toward us. That You have not only forgiven our sin, but You've removed the guilt. You've cleansed us completely of our sin. And You have restored us that we might be made whole. Lord, we would pray this morning that You would Cause us to examine our hearts to make certain that we are like the publican when we pray. That we are like the publican when we stand and approach you with a spirit of humility and brokenness. May we as Christians live our lives always in brokenness. May we live our lives always realizing that we owe a great debt to the one who paid the debt we could not pay. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy upon us. And I pray that you would convict hearts today under the preaching of thy word. For we ask this in your most holy and gracious name. Amen.